is up, friends. Hello. Welcome to the newest episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. I am Tim, the host of the show. Um, welcome. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much. It means a lot to have your ears on this podcast. We are also a community online. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook um, or, or on our website, thenewevangelicals.com. So thank you for listening. Okay. On this episode of the podcast, I interviewed Brandon Robertson. Now, you might recognize Brandon from TikTok or maybe Instagram. He actually most recently debated Ali Stuckey on abortion on her show. So he's a progressive pastor, but he did not start out this way. He actually grew up pretty conservative. He got he went to um, Moody Bible School, a very conservative school, and eventually transitioned from point A to point B. Why did he do that? Well, this interview unpacks that along with what's the future of the evangelical church and how do we move forward? forward as faithful Jesus people away from maybe the toxic fundamentalism that so many of us grew up in. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Of course, a sincere thank you to everyone who listens to the show. Hey, if you have not given us a rating or a review on iTunes, would you possibly, if you can, do that for us. It would be a huge help because it really helps us out in search engine optimization. You can also now review on Spotify. It takes literally about five to 10 seconds to hit that little star button. Would you mind doing that? It would help us out so much. Of course, all the work that we do here is completely paywall-free, and we're able to make that happen because people donate. So we do have an, uh, an honest and humble ask. If you're willing and able, would you consider donating to us? Let me just tell you where we're at right now. Our foundational monthly goal to hit is $6,500 a month. That would cover uh, the time it takes for me to make all of this stuff happen between Instagram, Facebook, Zoom groups, the podcast, and all the back-end stuff. So that covers my time and my salary. It also covers our overhead, our subscriptions, our web hosting, and also gives us some money to be able to help out others in the community. We do this work completely paywall-free because we don't feel right charging people to get extra help as they disentangle their faith. So we rely on the generosity of the community to make this work possible. If you be so willing, you can click on the link in our show notes. All donations are tax deductible. Friends, I can't say this enough. It really helps. I'm not here to tell you that by giving to us, you're giving to God. I'm not here to tell you that if you don't give, you're not a good person. That is not what we're saying. What we are saying is that if you're willing and able, would you consider donating to us monthly? Here's the bottom line. If we had about 80 more people out of the thousands that we reach give $20 a month, we'd be totally funded um, at a foundational level that would, get us, that would get us in a comfortable spot where we could start planning some of the next level stuff that we want to do as a community and also continue our upkeep and frankly, helps me sleep a little bit easier at night knowing that 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 this stuff is just taken care of. So again, we just humbly ask for you to consider donating to donating to us 20 bucks a month. It helps out everyone. Your donations help us reach other people who are desperate for better ways to flesh out and to live in the Christian tradition. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Brandon Robertson. Hope you enjoy it. Brandon, 
pleasure to have you on. You've been on my list actually for quite a while. Um, many in our community have recommended you, so it took a few t- a few tries. The devil was really after us. There was some demonic oppression active, but uh, we were able to kick him in the butt, and here we are making the interview happen. So it's great I'm to so have you. Glad. <laughs> so glad to be connected. Yeah, I've been follow- following your work for a little while now as well, and yeah, just really compelled by what you're up to, and glad we're finally getting to have a conversation. So That is super kind. Thank you. Yeah, you know, so I was telling you before we started recording, Recording that I, unless it's like something specific that that I'm having a guest on for, I try and keep my my research minimal because it's fun to uncover people in that in that that real time moment, you know. And I've seen you obviously on Instagram, on TikTok. I know you do reels, etc. Um, but I don't really know a whole lot about like what makes you tick. So why don't you kind of give us maybe the crash course intro? Who are you, and what kind of work do you do right now? And how did you get there? The floor is yours. Yeah, wow. That's a great question. And I think um, for me and for so many others, I've been having these conversations with like, this is a season where I'm really evolving in who I am and what I do in the world. But what I will say is this, uh, my long, short journey was I entered into Christianity by way of fundamentalist Baptist church when I was 12. Didn't grow up religious, but went to church with my neighbors. And Coming from a, I came from a really kind of rough background, abusive father, alcoholism, drugs, all of that around. Mm. And when I stepped into the church, albeit a fundamentalist one, uh, I experienced what I understood at the time was the grace of God, the love of God, and a community that was genuinely excited for me to be there and loved me Mm. for just who I was. And it was really that experience that at 12 years old brought me into Christianity headfirst. I would jumped in. I was dedicated to it once I kind of had that salvation encounter. Um, and yeah. from that point forward, I've been fascinated with Christianity, fascinated with helping people learn about the gospel that changed my life. Um, obviously, my faith has transformed and shifted so much uh, since I was 12. I'm now almost 30, and I've gone through a theological education in the evangelical world. I went to Moody Bible Institute for undergrad studying to be a pastor. Um, And really it was my four years at Moody that shifted everything for me. It was the experience of having evangelical theology being taught to me in a classroom and then walking outside of Moody. For those who don't know, it's this fundamentalist evangelical school in the heart of Chicago. Mm. So I would walk out the doors of the campus and be in this incredible city where I was exposed to people and beliefs and backgrounds that my tradition demonized. Um, One of the most uh, visceral experiences that I had was just a block away from Moody is this little church called LaSalle Street Church. And we were told when we got to Moody, like, that's the church you stay away from. There are plenty of good churches around here to go to. Don't go to that one. Naturally, I went to that one. Um, (laughs) And I remember sitting there on my first Sunday with a bunch of Moody students and a woman got up and stepped behind the pulpit. And that was new to me. And when that happened, a bunch of my fellow students got up and walked out. And I remember sitting there and like really trying to discern what I was supposed to do. And this woman began preaching and she preached this incredibly rich gospel centered, like biblical message. And then I realized that in the front pew, there were two women holding hands and I had another freak out moment in this church. Like, Oh my God, are these gay people? Right. And I talked to them after service. They actually came up to me and said, Hey, we can tell you're for Moody. Cause you're the only person here wearing a suit and bringing a Bible. Uh, <laughs> but, and they just engaged me in conversation and welcomed me and showed hospitality. And it, 
I walked out of church that day being like, okay, women preachers are unbiblical. Gay people are unbiblical. And yet these people embraced me and showed love and grace in ways that I didn't think they were capable of based on what my tradition had taught me. So those experiences began making me rethink what it meant to be a Christian. Um, and I'll pause in a, what, after I say this, um, but as I was rethinking those things in real time, I began at Moody having a blog and a podcast. And I used to write about these things and speak about these things. And when Moody heard that, um, they called me into the dean's office and said, you're really playing with fire. Like you're, you're playing with heresy. And if you mm. keep talking to these people, if you keep writing these things, if you keep going to these churches, we're going to expel you because you're clearly not one of us. And that happened over four years, six times, because I continued to do this stuff because it felt like I was just being honest. I was trying to get an education. I was just asking questions and getting to know people. And I read the gospels and read Jesus's own life and ministry and saw him doing that. And I, I couldn't understand why my school was responding with such fear and why my tradition was responding with such fear. And it was that fear and that reaction and their posture of making me an enemy for simply asking and inquiring about different people and perspectives that provoked me all the more to keep asking and to seeking and um, graduated by the grace of God, um, had my own coming out experience. We can get into all of that at some point, but really upon leaving Moody, I kind of knew I needed to leave evangelicalism because it didn't seem like there was space for somebody asking honest questions in that tradition. And that led me on this journey to becoming a progressive Christian pastor and author. Uh, and now I spend my days primarily um, trying to help other folks coming from conservative traditions feel okay with asking questions, feel okay with being honest and authentic about who they are and realizing that our faith has room for all of that. Mm, wow. Man, I feel like we could be here for hours. You said so many amazing things. I just want to unpack every one of them. Why don't we start here? Um, let's talk about that shift for you from fundamentalism to kind of more progressive. Because I feel like obviously we're in, I'm in this quote unquote deconstruction space, right? And a lot of people, I'm 33. Um, I've been kind of on this journey for quite a few years. I've, it's accelerated big time in the past like two years, but I've always been kind of on this path. Um, because like you, I think that you would say that you've always been committed to Jesus. Like that's been like a guiding light for you. And you read the gospels and you're like, okay, uh, Matthew 25, hmm, pretty, pretty damning indictment. If we're not, if we're not taking care of the poor or, you know, meeting those in prison, we're going to be in trouble. Or, you know, I think it's in Luke where Jesus says that, that he's come to bring liberation to the oppressed and good news to the poor. Like, okay, you know, and so you read this stuff like, yeah, this makes sense. And then all of a sudden the tradition that, that you're a part of is like, well, you're really playing with fire. You're kind of in like heresy land, but you're just reading like the words from the gospels. What was that like for you because for me it's very disorienting to be like guys why am i so problematic i'm just doing what you told me like i'm reading the bible and i'm trying to apply it what's the problem so what was it what, what was that like for you yeah i mean i think that is the number one thing that at least begins people's deconstruction journey is uh especially from an, the evangelical world like there's yeah, such yeah. an emphasis on Jesus and everything we say and do. I mean, right, I, right, I remember right. from our Driscoll fans, like he used to say all the time, it's all about Jesus. That was this whole thing. And yet you listen to the teachings of most evangelical churches and you go to evangelical schools and yeah. 
you're not reading Jesus. We, uh, the gospels weren't something Moody taught me to focus on. We were all about Paul. We were all about everything else in the Bible, except mm-hmm. for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason is Jesus himself said it. Uh, it's not a popular or easy path to actually follow the example of Jesus. And I don't claim and never have claimed to actually been able to do that, but I at least want to try because again, when I convert it to Christianity as a 12 year old, 12 year old, it was because the love of Jesus was what drew me. The proclamation of this, this man who gave his life for me, that's what drew me. And then it became about Paul and it became about doctrine and it came about theology. I love all of that too, but that's not the heart of my faith. And I think um, having that moment at Moody where I realized, wow, evangelicals, we we aren't about Jesus. We don't really care much about Jesus at all. In fact, there was one of my favorite preachers at the time who I still like. Uh, his name is Tullian Tavijim, Billy Graham's grandson. He was always a little bit more progressive, but yeah. his big thing in Bible college, I remember, he used to tell people, Jesus set an example so that we could know we could never follow it. Jesus was so perfect. His whole purpose of teaching what he taught and doing what he did was to expose how inadequate humanity was. So you don't really need to follow it. It's meant Mm. to be a measure to show you, you can't follow it. And I was like, like, how insane is it that evangelicals or some evangelicals are teaching? It's not even worth trying because it's just too hard. So let's focus on Paul and believing the right things rather than actually trying to make Jesus's vision of the kingdom a reality. And I think so many people call BS on that. Well, I think that's why we're seeing um, um, a mass, mass exodus out of these specifically in my context, white evangelical spaces. I think, and I think that the 2016 election for many was that moment of like, okay, the quiet part is being said out loud. Like you said, you know, yeah, this isn't really about Jesus, is it? It's about the political power. It's about someone who's pandering to them. Um, Obviously, sexual morality can't be that important if you're telling me to vote for the guy on the cover of Playboy magazine. Even though I was raised homeschooled fundamentalist, you know, purity culture, the same people who were telling me about about that were also telling me to vote for Trump. It's like, wait, something is wrong. So I, I feel like you're really you're hitting the nail on the head and you're speaking um, 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 you're speaking to the hearts of a lot of people and why they are what I call having a crisis of theology, not having a crisis of faith. Right, yeah. like they're still committed to Jesus. We want to be, and because of that, the theology that we inherited and were taught is completely now inadequate for us because it makes no it makes no sense. Yeah, totally. And I think the mechanism that evangelicalism um, is built upon with that is pushing people away is the fact that all of its theology in some way or another is fear based, and even mm. the fact that evangelicals uh, supported Trump. The way people made that moral leap initially, I mean, I remember being, I was kind of in the evangelical world back uh, when Trump was on the scene for the first time. And the moral leap was, well, the alternative to Trump is somebody who's going to come and do terrible things to Christianity, take away our rights, religious freedoms going away, like gay marriage, all these, or gay marriage was already a thing, but like, Right. It was fear. Evangelicals were using fear to say, we need to choose Trump. Yes, he's terrible. Yes, he's immoral, but he's better than the alternative. And whenever anybody is forced to function out of fear, whether it's believing out of fear, voting out of fear, that's when, I mean, first John says, God is love and love casts out all fear. God is not present in fear-based 
teaching. God is not present among fear mongers. And I think um, for me, that was a big moment. Actually reading first John was a moment while I was at Moody mm. and realizing the school is causing me to be so afraid of God judging me for believing the wrong things or not voting for the right person. And yet Jesus wasn't going around trying to terrify people. No, he was actually inviting people into conversation, inviting people to his table. There was a love there. Um, and I think that's what people are realizing, that evangelicalism and a lot of other conservative Christianity is a religion of fear. And that religion is incompatible with the bold faith that Jesus uh, calls us to. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that that you're now in progressive Christianity. Is, yeah. that, is that what you said? Can help me out here because I'll be honest, right? I find that progressive Christianity is very hard to define. Mm. Um, you know, even I, there's a, a book I um, I read and interviewed the author, uh, "One Faith No, no Longer" by George Yancey. He he's yep. a sociologist and makes the point that essentially his thesis is that um, progressive and conservative Christians are so far apart they should be categorized as different religions. And even in the book, mm. he concedes that it's very hard to really categorize like what are some of the core beliefs. Of a, of, a, of a progressive Christian, and even though I I get thrown into that camp a lot, I'm like, well, it depends on what you mean. Like, if you're telling yeah. me that progressives don't affirm the resurrection, I'm not progressive. But if you're saying progressives are social justice oriented, I guess I'm progressive. So, like, what have yeah. you found in, with that terminology? What defines a progressive Christian? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, in some sense, it's unfair to pit progressive versus conservative Christianity, even though that's what the language itself does. Yeah, The fact yeah. is Christianity has never been one religion. There's never been one Christianity. There's always been Christianities. Mm, um, and, and the fact also is like, I'm probably not the best person to answer this question because by most people's standards, I'm probably not a Christian. Um, I, I'm so far to the left. Uh, my faith has taken me on such a, a, a different journey that I don't find it compelling to need to affirm orthodoxy anymore. I think orthodoxy as an idea is very problematic um, oh. because it's it was created by Emperor Constantine calling together a bunch of bishops whom he appointed politically to then decide what the right beliefs of Christianity is. And they had to come up with a document. I can go off on that. But uh, so my faith as a progressive Christian simply boils down to I think Jesus is compelling, and I want to invite anyone to come and follow Jesus, regardless of what they believe about Jesus. Um, and so even in the community I now pastor, Metanoia, we've got lots of people that self-identify as atheists and agnostic, but want to follow the example of Jesus. I think, hey, you're welcome on this journey. And as for me, I'm, I use the word Christian agnostic, meaning all the theology I was once so certain about, I don't have any answers to anymore. When people ask me, is God a Trinity? Maybe, sure, mm. I, but I, I can't know that. And did Jesus rise from the dead? It seems like it, but I can't know that. So I really tried to hold faith like faith and not like certainty and say, yeah, maybe that stuff happened, but my faith doesn't rise and fall on that. My faith rise and falls on, am I looking and reading and studying the example of Jesus and trying to live that out day by day, because ultimately at the end of the day, that's what Jesus said matters. He says, those who do the will of my father are those who enter the kingdom, not those who cry out, Lord, Lord. And I think a majority of Christianity is Lord Lording today when we just are called to follow. Okay. Let me ask you a question about that, right? Because yeah. I've been, um, 
on my own journey like all of us. And I'm a big fan of the Bible Project podcast. I love Tim Mackey. They do just for me, it's just so great. And something I've realized is that I guess I've been wired to believe that whatever the Bible says must be completely historically true in all ways, shapes, and forms, right? Versus what the Bible says versus what might or might not be reality. So for example, right, let's talk about the resurrection for a second. I think it's pretty clear that at least Paul and at least the the gospel writers affirm a physical resurrection happened. I mean, I think it's pretty evident that that, that's at least what they're trying to point to. But regarding that being, like you said, Okay, follow me for a minute. Sorry, I'm a little all, I'm a little all over the yeah. place, but you know, as Westerners, like the way that we think about history, the way that, that we think about science is not how how a Paul or a Matthew or Mark or a Luke obviously yeah. think about it, right? Like we know that that gospel writers, you know, how how you might tell history might, might be a little bit different than like that what Tim Mackey would say would be the camcorder footage. Did this literally yeah. actually happen exactly how we're writing it, right? And so that mm-hmm. has kind of like it's not messed with me, but it's made me kind of think outside my own parameters of like, yeah. am I putting un fair categories on the Bible uh, or, or or on these gospel accounts or on these epistles that the authors really were not trying to make the case for, right? So, I mean, what are your thoughts on some of that kind of stuff where it's like, it, for me, you know, for me, I feel like at least the way I read Paul right now and read the gospel writers, like the resurrect, a physical resurrection seems pretty like a thing, you know, Paul's pretty big on the resurrection at some point. And so I'm like, okay, like I want to affirm that. But like you said, I also recognize that that's pretty crazy to say, you know, I realize that it really pushes against all of our normal modern sensibilities. But again, is that me putting an unfair category on the Bible? Does does that make sense? What I'm trying to say? No, totally. I think that's precisely the thing. I always say the Protestant reformation was one of the best things and the worst things to happen to Christianity because the worst thing, because it put the Bible or at least open the door for the Bible to be put in the hands of lay people. Yeah. And this might, some people might not like the way this sounds, but I think it's true. That's okay. The Bible is an ancient text. Unless you are trained in the culture, the context and the language of the Bible, like any other ancient literature, you can't just pick it up and understand it. And evangelicals especially have been taught. Anybody should just pick up the Bible and read it and God will speak the truth to you. And it's like, there's a level spiritually where that is true. But when we're talking critically about the text and we're talking about what the author means, you can't do that without having studied the Greek and the Hebrew, or at least studying the resources of people that have studied the Greek and Hebrew and things like resurrection. Like, I mean, we can go off on this for hours, but I'll just say like, go for it. My understanding is in Judaism, there is only one resurrection. There's a resurrection from the dead and it's all people are raised. This is why if you go to like Jerusalem, all the Jewish cemeteries outside of the old city. The the caskets are above ground because they were prepared for the resurrection so that they could come out of their tombs when the Messiah came and at the last judgment, everyone would be physically resurrected together. So for someone to claim that Jesus was physically resurrected, Jesus was Jewish, all of the early disciples were Jewish, that would have been inconceivable because there's one resurrection and everyone is resurrected. And so my question, like if we want to get into the technicality is like, clearly the early church believed Jesus was raised. Did they believe he walked out of the tomb in a physical flesh and blood body with a heart beating and blood going through his veins? I would say that seems unlikely because Jesus appears in rooms. My body can't appear in rooms and people we've come up with, well, that's the resurrection body. But again, that can't happen in Jewish eschatology. There's only one resurrection. There's no such thing as it's a physical resurrection. And when Paul meets Jesus, it's not physically like Peter walked with Jesus. It's on the road to Damascus in this 
weird vision that sounds like thunder and lightning, like whatever they experienced wasn't the same physical Jesus. And the last example of that is like on the road to Emmaus, the disciples are walking with Jesus and they don't recognize that it's Jesus. Hmm. And it's only when Jesus leaves that they say, oh my God, that was him. And so my whole thing is, yeah, sure. Jesus is raised, but it's not, I don't think contextually, it doesn't seem to be physical like you and I are physical. And at the end of the day, I think debating about it is silly because I wasn't there. Uh, and yeah, can't prove that. I, I and mean, I don't honestly, think I, I wish I could debate. I, I'm really not honest. I'm, I'm not a Bible scholar, you know, but <laughs> right. and, and I asked the question really in good faith because the podcast that we have is all about this, right? Like it's important that we have these perspectives represented because we tell our followers, really our community, that that the way that we describe it is we're coming out of the basement of evangelicalism and into the house of Christian thought. And it turns yeah. out the house is humongous and there's yeah. like a ton of rooms, right? And like right. and like you said, it, it's more like Christianities, <laughs> not so no. much than just Christianity. And I think that's almost beautiful because it means that like there's room for you somewhere if you want to be a part of it, right? Like yeah. like there there is. And so I'm, I know that for some people and even for me, the the resurrection is a very maybe touchy subject right like i i still affirm it but like i'm also i want to i want to know what's true as much as i can and i want i, I want to be faithful to jesus and also to how i think the text hopefully is is being read and, and interpreted so having yes. these perspectives is, is important so i, I want to keep if, if, if you don't mind down this path a little bit farther with the orthodox thing this is another big thing yeah. right so again i'm on this account i get these people in my dms i, I follow these accounts that are really big on orthodoxy this is not orthodox. This isn't orthodox. Um, and I'm like, okay, first, just if you don't mind, unpack what, what orthodox means and then why for you, you've just found yourself kind of floating away from not even being concerned if you're labeled orthodox by evangelical standards or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So orthodox simply just means right belief. Quite literally, that's what it breaks down to etymologically. Um, and when we're talking about Christian orthodoxy, yeah, like this is what I spent the past three years doing and I'm about to get a PhD in the fall. And this is a large part of it. Dang, uh, and, all right. I'm ready. Yeah. I'm buckling up. Yeah. So this is, this is, this is my stuff right here. But uh, so early Christianity starts, right. And it was yeah. these disparate movements all across the ancient Roman empire of these small communities who never met each other. They didn't have a Bible. They had heard stories about Jesus were compelled and they came together. And so you have Every church believed different things. You see this all throughout the New Testament. People are arguing, who do you follow? What do you believe? Paul or Apollos or Peter? So the early church was disparate and broken up and had different beliefs. Um, It was also very Jewish. The early Christians were not another religion. They still practiced Judaism. Then this movement keeps growing. Paul goes and spends his time in the Roman Empire, really builds up Christianity there. Um, the emperors try to tamp down Christianity. Nero tries to kill the Christians um, and end the movement. Nobody can because what Christianity is doing is empowering the marginalized and the poor. And once you give marginalized people hope, they don't let that go very easily. You can torture them. You can do all sorts of things. It doesn't really work out very well. And that's what we see with Christianity. Yeah. Emperor Constantine looks out eventually, we're talking hundreds of years later, and sees Christianity is still going strong, sees persecution doesn't work. He has some experience where he converts to Christianity. Some people believe that's a real encounter with Jesus. Some people think that was a political move. Regardless, who cares? When he creates Christianity and says, this can be the religion of the empire, he takes all of the leaders of the church, the bishops, 
and says, you are now political leaders. I'm giving you political authority over the areas that you have churches. And so overnight, bishops went from being marginalized and persecuted Hmm. to privileged and powerful. Hmm. Then, and he's doing this so that he can unify the empire. Constantine is literally saying, we need to become a Christian empire so we can have one unified empire and not break up and not destroy the empire. Right. But here's the thing, Christians debate theology. That's what we do. And so the early church, these bishops were, he's a heretic, he's a heretic. They believe something different. What is right? Constantine says, in order to keep the empire together, I'm calling you all to Nicaea. And in Nicaea, you all have to come up with a creed that says, this is what Christians believe. And anyone who doesn't align with that, we're going to say, isn't a Christian, punishable by law. And we're going to make sure we're all a unified empire together. And that's what happens at Nicaea. They come together. There's political power involved. So we already know political power corrupts motives, but these emperor or these bishops get around a table for a couple of months and debate theology. And whoever won the debate won orthodoxy. And so there are people who are declared heretics and cast out. And anybody who believed as their bishop did, um, believing what was now declared heresy was said, you're not a Christian anymore. You have a chance to be a Christian only if you convert to what we believe is true. Anyways, the Council of Nicaea comes out, they say this, this is the creed, and now you have a unified version of Christianity that is called Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And 2,000 years later, we still hold that creed by these emperors or by these bishops in this very sketchy situation. That is what we say you have to believe in order to be a Christian, and anything outside of that is not Christianity. And in fact, Orthodoxy would say is damnable. It's going to lead you to hell. You're going to face God's judgment. Hmm. How in the world do we get from a disparate movement started by this renegade rabbi who is challenging his own tradition to an emperor saying, this is now what Christianity is when Christ spent his whole life opposing empire and was actually killed by that same empire. Um, why, why do we unquestioningly take the council of Nicaea's declaration as the truth and I think we have good reason not to. I think every generation should wrestle with Christian doctrine itself and determine for ourselves what we believe is accurate. And I think the core of Christian faith has always been the declaration that Jesus is Lord from the earliest days. Anybody who gets on board with saying Jesus is the one who I'm trying to follow, that's what makes a Christian, not whether or not you affirm the Trinity, the virgin birth, all of these other things that Nicaea said were now essential to Christian faith. Okay, that's- Even long weekends are short, so why spend a second of this one on a drink run? Instead, get drinks delivered right to your door with Drizzly. Drizzly is the easiest way to find the best prices on beer, wine, and spirits, so you can get back to lighting those totally legal fireworks. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Because the long weekend will be over before this ad is. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. Helpful, and it's also very interesting because you know I've read the Nicene Creed, and it, in some ways, I mean, it's specific. You know, it talks about the Trinity and virgin birth, but like as far as like issues that now many evangelicals divide over, like it has nothing to say, nothing to yeah, say about absolutely. eternal conscious torment, nothing to say about sexuality, nothing to say about the inerrancy of Scripture. And what I found is that is that a lot of 
I call them Theo bros, but whatever. A lot, a lot of these guys, right, who love to be these gatekeepers are like, oh, you're so unorthodox. I'm like, and then what I'll say is actually I affirm that I see in Creed. But guess what? It says nothing about these other things that you have you've made like new orthodoxies, right? That that you're saying if you don't believe these things, you're out. And I think yeah. that's what's frustrating because I think that someone can affirm that I see in Creed and still be a pretty progressive, like you know, Jesus follower, yeah. affirming follower, yeah. right? Because it, it's it's that it's that broad enough. But yeah. we've been kind of conditioned to believe that like if you're orthodox, what that means is you're you pretty much have to have the theology of Paul Washer essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, like I don't think that that's the case, even if we're gonna go by the Nicene Creed. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's what it's the hypocrisy and irony, right? Is that people claim orthodoxy, they claim that it can't be changed, that the creeds can't be changed, and yet we have changed orthodoxy. There are new standards. And when you ask an evangelical why sexuality is uh, now an orthodox matter, which is something I've debated evangelicals about ever since I came out in 2015, um, the answer is, well, uh, the creeds affirm, uh, it basically comes down to there's an affirmation of uh, Genesis chapter one and Adam and Eve and one man, one woman for one lifetime. And if we can't agree on that, then what can we agree on as Christian? And the long story short is the creed doesn't say anything about this, as you said. And there's a moving of the goalposts to say that whatever it, whatever will help people maintain power and privilege is what becomes orthodoxy. Yes. And evangelicals are losing power and privilege. And this is what Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson saw in the 60s and 70s. Yes. And they said, okay, so we're going to latch on to two issues, homosexuality and abortion. And we're going to say these are the orthodox issues of our era. And again, orthodoxy always forms when politics and religions meet. And that's precisely what happened at the beginning of the religious right movement. Yeah, I mean, and we, you know, I'm sure you know this as well. You know, Jerry Falwell was a staunch uh, segregationist. I mean, that, that was his, his initial starting. And when that wasn't palatable, okay, well, the gays and abortion are our new thing, yeah. you know? So let's get back to your story then, because you mentioned that yeah. in 2015, you came out. Okay, unpack that for us. I mean, what was that like for you? What, what led up to that? And then we'll get into maybe some more of that human sexuality throughout history kind of yeah. conversation. Yeah, well, this this part is convoluted and crazy as well. But okay. uh, so the quick version of it is I while I was at Moody, I when I went off to Moody, I knew I was struggling with my sexuality, but I thought mm. that if I got to Bible college, that I wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. If I was finally in a place where I was studying to be a pastor, like somehow this struggle would go away. Right. Obviously, it didn't. I wrestled with it for four years. I met lots of other people struggling with same-sex attraction. Um, I was mentored by a prominent ex-gay uh, person and eventually was outed to my faculty and they forced me into conversion therapy my senior year at Moody. And so did everything I was supposed to do, everything possible as an evangelical to be straight. Yeah. And at the yeah. end of my Moody experience and at the end of conversion therapy, I realized I'd done everything. I tried to be faithful and nothing changed. And my understanding of scripture had started to at least open up around this. And so when I graduated Moody, I came back to DC where I'm from and spent the summer really wrestling and praying and reading. And um, what really ended up happening was I got a book deal at the end of my senior year from an evangelical publisher to write about being a new kind of evangelical. And, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when I got that book deal, I wrote this book, but I also, in the fall after graduating from Moody, 
took a job. I was invited to be the new spokesperson for an organization called Evangelicals for Marriage Equality, which was a group here in DC that was conservative evangelical. They believed it was a sin to be gay, but they were advocating for marriage equality as a civil right, saying evangelicals, you should support, support the civil right of LGBT people, even though we don't support the right in the church to be married. And so somehow, I really don't understand how I got that job. And very publicly, we launched in Time Magazine, came out as the poster boy for this new movement to say evangelicals can be uh, pro-gay marriage and anti-LGBT in the church. And when that happened, my publisher called me up and said, unless you affirm publicly that you stand against gay marriage and say that homosexuality is a sin, we're going to drop this book. When they did that, a Time reporter found out and she started digging around in my own life, wanting to do a story about me losing the book deal. And she found out that I had been struggling with my sexuality and kind of in DC had started exploring, so to speak, like hanging out in LGBT spaces. Sure. And so she said, hey, we're going to write this story about you losing your book deal for supporting gay marriage. But we also know that you're, you're gay. And so we're going to write about that. But I want to give you some time to do what you need to do before the story comes out. Wow. So pretty much like we're doing this, but I will give you some heads up. Yeah. And the heads up was her editor press published the next day. Uh, <gasps> and so there's a headline that came out. People can still see it on Google. It says young evangelical leader loses book deal after coming out. And oh. I only, yeah, that's how my parents found out. I just woke up the next day, was hanging with some friends around breakfast time and my phone just started blowing up. And I looked down, saw the article. I called my mom. It's like, hey, you're going to get on Facebook and see this. Just be prepared. Um, and I was out it. And what was even worse was that the evangelical world responded to that and to this new evangelical for marriage equality thing. And so people like Al Mohler did radio shows about me the next Shocking. day. Al Michael Mohler Brown did like, Oh my God, Michael um, Brown. Dear heavens. But it yeah, it's eye roll. And it's like, screw you all. Like, I'm having, like, regardless of whether you think I'm right or wrong, like, have some decency to not jump on a 21 year old kid who just got outed in a maggot. Like, anyways, but can I just so, say, too, that is, that is, in my view, so unethical for times to do that. Just to be like, yeah. hey, we have this sense of information that you haven't told anyone, and um, we're going to do it no matter what what you think you want to do with this information. And by the way, it's happening tomorrow. That's crazy. Well, to to be fair, I will say, so the reporter is still somebody I respect and is a friend of mine. Uh, and she did her due diligence. It was really the editor's press published without her knowing. She called me and apologized. Like, oh, was so sorry. But I mean, it's how media works, not to write it off. And honestly, though, right. in hindsight, I'm grateful yeah. because yeah. I never had to have any awkward conversations that so many people coming out have to do. I was like, hey, it's there. So there we go. Um, but okay. yeah, it was okay. a traumatic couple of weeks in my life. All my moody professors, literally emails and letters in the mail telling me how disappointed they were. And then I ha also had this new platform to speak about LGBT and faith. And I mean, it really has helped me cultivate the work that I do today. So I try to see the good side of it, but yeah, it was a traumatic moment when it happened. So, so you know, when you were at Moody, as you say, struggling with your sexuality, air quotes, right? Um, yeah. How much of a role did the Bible in, in, in the quote unquote clobber verses play in this? Because I know that as evangelicals were taught, like this is the major authority 
especially in this arena. And so no matter what you think, you have to submit, quote unquote, to what the English text says about about homosexuality in the in this in these verses. Where were you with yeah. that as you're wrestling through all this? Yeah. Again, this is a reason why evangelicals should not just hand people the Bible and say, just read it for yourself. Mm. Um, because I was like most evangelicals. I thought it was quite clear. Um, and I even, I mean, like I said, one of our professors was a, is a pretty prominent ex-gay Christian yeah. who spends his time teaching courses at Moody about these passages. And so I had taken his courses. I thought I understood what the Bible said. Mm. The thing is, the evangelical interpretation... If, if you're just taking the English interpretation or uh, translation of the Bible at face value, you should, that's always a red flag. That's the one thing I want to say to any evangelical who might be listening, wrestling with this is like, don't take the English translation for granted. Go back, do the work, look at the language, look at the culture, look at the context. And I didn't do that until after Bible college, when I was studying in a, a seminary and it becomes so abundantly clear that these verses at least are not talking about the same thing we're talking about when we're talking about sexuality and gender identity. Like mm. my loving consensual relationship with a partner someday is not what is happening in Romans one. And like we can, you can still believe homosexuality is a sin, but it's still not talking about the same thing that we're mm. talking about. And so, mm. mm-hmm. but at the time I took it at face value. I thought the Bible was clear and that's why I I had no intention of coming out anytime soon. Um, I was really wrestling and praying and doing the work, um, which is probably the most frustrating narrative you hear from conservatives today is like, you were just trying to make the Bible fit your lifestyle. And it's like, no, I spent eight years wrestling, studying, praying, doing conversion therapy. This wasn't me just saying, oh, I don't believe what the Bible says. It was an anguishing over the text until I became convinced that the text wasn't talking about me. Yeah, now that, that's helpful because um, I think a lot of people, and even even myself, uh, for a long time, was like, uh, had this like weird thing in my head where I was like, I was, I was like, personally, I'm affirming, but like then there's this little voice in the back of my head, like, well, these these Bible verses that, that kind of pop back up, and it's like, well, the, yeah. what does the Bible say? But I think one of the things that really has pushed me, I mean, to just be blatantly affirming is that as I'm reading like our own American history and seeing how Christians use the Bible to keep black people out of, out of like these spaces and like reading Bob Jones sermons about, about why black people are inferior and how the Bible is quote unquote clear and, and him pulling his verses out and making the arguments. That was a moment where I'm like, you know, if you just insert the word queer for black in some of these sermons, you have the same exact arguments that we're hearing now. And I just don't find them compelling because like I think anyone would anyone would say this, but the Bible, you can make the Bible say anything that you want. I mean, that is that is just yeah. the straight up truth. You can pull any verses you want, thread any needle you want to make it seem against whoever you want. And unfortunately, it seems like people in power historically do that. Like like we were talking yeah. about earlier with the orthodoxy, the moving of the goalposts, right? Um, yeah. And it, it's very frustrating. So I think that for me, that was one of the main motivators of like, I'm not going to be on the wrong side of history again, right? I'm not going to yeah. look back in 50 years and be like, what was I thinking? What were we thinking? Because we yeah. can look back now and see how Bat shit crazy. These fundamentalist white evangelicals were when it came to race. They were, they were. Yeah. It was evil, frankly, evil. Totally, and you said it. But like, I mean, in the same way, there are six 
passages that are clear about homosexuality. There are multitudes of passages in the Old and the New Testament that are really clear about racial superiority and about slavery. And of course, there's eye roll evangelical arguments about that's not the same kind of slavery. And that's not the no, actually, the New Testament affirms slavery all the way through the book of Revelation. And so right. we need to ask ourselves something. If our text is wrong, and so this is a whole nother, we could talk about this for an hour, but <laughs> the Bible is wrong on some things. Like, mm. it, slaves obey your master is a wrong thing for Paul to say. And the abolitionists came to that realization because they saw that through the text, there was a spirit that was pointing away from that kind of behavior, even though the text itself did not get to that place. Mm -hmm. And so the abolitionists took the spirit of liberation in the text and said, because we follow Jesus, we don't, we can't conceive of Jesus having slaves, even though Paul says it's okay to have slaves. So we're going to go with what the spirit of the text says rather than what the words of the text say. Mm -hmm. And so I would say even to Christians who still believe that the Bible condemns homosexuality. The question is, is it right for you to translate that into policies that oppress and condemn and marginalize LGBT people, even if you personally can't get your head around it theologically? And our tradition has consistently been one that says, sometimes the plain reading of the text is wrong and we need to move beyond that. Um, yeah, I mean, on on top of that too, we can see the fruit, right, uh, of like yeah. our position, and it's 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 harmful and it's killed people. I mean, um, Bridget Eileen Rivera, I'm a huge fan, um, and she wrote the book, um, you know, Heavy Burdens, and in the book she makes the argument. Oh, many arguments, but one of them is is she kind of does a, a brief history of like how. Um, evangelicals have treated the queer community historically throughout the AIDS crisis and so on and so forth. And it's like, it is not pretty. It is ugly. And she makes the point that out of any people group that attend church, if you're queer and attend church, you're statistically at a higher risk of suicide over any other group. And any other group, yeah. your, your your number goes down. But if you're gay or, or you know in the queer community, it goes up. That should tell us something right away, that whatever yeah. we're teaching, if it's bringing that kind of harm to people, we have to rethink it because we're hurting Imago Dei bearers, right? Like image of God bearers, yeah. and we're causing them to really like, you know, either do self-harm or have a, or have mental health issues. And it's it's very unhealthy. It just is. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Every study, uh, in the first chapter of my book, Gospel of Inclusion, is dedicated to hmm. looking at like six or seven of these studies that show across the board, being in a non-affirming environment, religious environment, you're, I, it's something like five times more likely to be kicked out and be homeless as a youth. It's something like eight to 10 times more likely to attempt suicide. And the question is, how can you claim to preach the gospel that brings abundant life to the least of these, to the marginalized, to the poor of society in Jesus's day? Yeah. And yet that same gospel is bringing death to not even just queer people. Look, I mean, yeah. This is one of the apologetic arguments that led to the end of uh, racism and slavery in a lot of churches. It's like, we have done, there's visible, tangible harm being done to the people that we are oppressing. Yeah. That is incompatible with following Jesus. Like, there's no way around that biblically. And exactly <laughs> as you're saying, right. Jesus was so focused on, let's do the right thing. Their belief is important. But Jesus constantly says, do, go and do likewise, do the will of my father. And so- we should focus more on how to embrace the marginalized and least of these and worry about the theology later. Like it's secondary. Mm. Yeah. It does seem like, like, like theology is an idol 
in these evangelical spaces, right? Where like that, you know, it's it's the idolatry of absolute certainty, the the idolatry of of even the Bible, right? Like it's almost like it's the fourth part of the Trinity if you believe in yeah, Trinity, yeah. right? But really, it's like that kind of idea where it's like, well, the Bible is everything. It's like. Oh, like, I don't know, you know, especially like you said, when you get into, into how we have our modern day Bible, like, you know, it's funny, like um, Bart Ehrman, right? I mean, he's a big skeptic now, obviously, but you listen to some of his stuff. He, he, he walked, he rocked my world. I'm like, wait, Bart, yeah. Bart, Bart, you're telling me that we don't have any of the original manuscripts from the gospels. I didn't know that. I assumed it was in yeah. the museum somewhere. Like here's Paul's handwriting, you know, but, but yeah. when you're, when you're growing up in a, when you grow up in, a, in, in an evangelical bubble and you're taught, this is God's word that settles yeah. a kind of idea. Then you realize one day, Oh shit. You know, like we don't have any of the original manuscripts because yeah. you've been taught. That's the only way to see the Bible. I can understand how your worldview completely crumbles. Right. And that the Bible is the number one thing that evangelicals need to rethink on their, like, that's what, as you're saying, leads to deconstruction. And what you will find out is that all of the assumptions, almost all of the assumptions you're taught in an evangelical class about the Bible are just patently wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, I mean, the thought experiment, you alluded to it in our first few minutes of Nobody was walking around with Jesus with a pen and paper writing things down. And even if you take the evangelical view that the Gospels are firsthand accounts written by people who were there, which almost no scholars would affirm that, but even if you believe that, they're still written 10, 20, 30, 40 years after these people were supposedly with Jesus. Can you imagine trying to record this conversation 50 years from now with any degree of accuracy? Like These texts are not what we have been taught they are. And when you actually discover what they really are and you begin to see the complexity of the Bible, yes, I have so much more respect for it. I'm so compelled by it. I Thank you. Yes, love it. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But it's not my, it's not God. That is why I freaking love the Bible project. I'm like listening. I'm like, wait. This is not any of my categories, but it's it's brilliant. Like, you know, Tim says it's like hyperlinking. The, the authors are hyperlinking on everything and everything's connected. But again, to a Western reader right over your head. But you're absolutely right. And I'm again, I'm going to emphasize for the audience out there. I'm no scholar in this. But the more I study, the more I listen to people like yourself or other experts, the more I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Bible maybe is more beautiful than I ever thought it was, even though it's none of the things that I was taught it was. Right. And right. and that's a weird thing and it's unsettling at first. But the more comfortable I get with that, the more I'm like, there's so much beauty here. There's so much wisdom here. The, these ancient authors are actually quite brilliant. And there's so much to learn from them about how we interact with the divine, et cetera. I, I absolutely yeah. agree with you on that. Yeah, that's really yeah. good. And the last thing I'll say about the Bible, just because it's something that again blows my mind when I first heard it. Yeah. Is that our faith is so Bible centric, and yet the we also have to remember that for the first 1500 years of Christianity, almost no lay Christians ever touched a Bible, opened a Bible, saw a Bible. At best, they would hear the Bible a few times a year read in a church. And for the first couple hundred years of Christianity, none of the early church movements had anything beyond maybe a Torah scroll if they could have afforded those in the early Christian community, and very few communities could. And so their faith was rooted in something other than the Bible. And this is what I point people to. It's like, I'm a skeptic on lots of things. I'm super liberal. I still believe the spirit of Christ is living and active in our world. And my faith 
goes back to being 12 years old and experiencing something that I understood to be Jesus, that's what transformed my life. It wasn't the Bible that transformed my life. The Bible's helpful. The Bible's beautiful. The Bible's wonderful. Yes. Move your faith off of the Bible. Move it back to the belief that there's a living and active Christ that we engage with, we worship with, worship we're in relationship with. And you can have that relationship apart from the Bible because the majority of Christians throughout history have had that relationship apart from the Bible. Do you listen, do you read uh, John Shelby Spong? Yeah. I hear you channeling a lot of a lot of, a lot of that Spong kind of uh, theology a little bit. I'm going through his book right now, A New Christianity for a New World, and uh, yeah. I'm not sure what to do with it yet, but it's uh, it's just blowing some categories for me. Yeah. <laughs> He's a bit, I'll say, for those listening, and Spong is a little more cynical than I think he needs to be a lot of the time. I think mm. um, a better Spong is um, uh, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Cross and Do- John Dominic Cross and is still alive uh, today. And he's been one of my mentors for the past few years, but he's like the world's foremost scholar on the historical Jesus. And mm. uh, he, and I just encourage people to read outside <laughs> of your categories, read yes. some of these people that are called heretics by the establishment mm. because even if you disagree at the end of the day, exactly as you said, allow some of your categories to be shaken because at the end of the day, you will not be judged based on the rightness or the wrongness of your belief. You're, you're saved by grace through faith. That is the most fundamental part of an evangelical faith. It's right, not right. about having the right answers on the theology test at the end of life. And so mm. stop being so afraid of needing to have it all figured out yeah. and be curious. I love that. So good. So we have a few minutes left here. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of curious to get some of your thoughts on the future of, of I mean, definitely the church in America in general. But, you know, you obviously were a product of evangelicalism. You're out of it now, but you're still tapped into it. I know people who are in evangelical circles follow you. I know that people who are deconstructing out of these circles are following you. Give me your thoughts. Like, what do you think is... Where do you think the evangelical American church is headed? Um, yeah. You know, I, I as having the account called the New Evangelicals, I really go back and forth like a madman where some days I'm like, yeah, I think maybe we can reform it and we can just tweak some things and make it healthier. But then more and more I'm like, give me the Molotov cocktail. I'll be the yeah. first one to throw it in. We have to yeah. burn this institution to the ground and just think of something more beautiful because it's just – I just can't take it anymore. What are yeah. your thoughts? Like where do you see the evangelical church in 10 years? Because – Again, in one way, I'm like, it's so problematic, but another way, it's so powerful and dominant. Like, uh, it's hard to know. Yeah. Well, I'll say this. I mean, back in my story, when I talked about my blog and podcast, when I started at Moody, my blog was called Revangelical, and I was starry-eyed and hopeful that we could rethink, reform, and renew evangelical faith. Um, there you go. I did arms. that for a good five years, and yeah. Um, I don't think it's true anymore. And just this past week, David Brooks in the New York Times wrote a piece about yeah. people trying to save evangelicalism. And what was hilarious for anybody who knows the evangelical world is that the people he named are all Southern Baptists. And um, the only thing that distinguishes them from far-right evangelicals was that they didn't support Trump. And so two things, David Brooks has conflated evangelicalism with Trump support, which I think is right in our modern era. Mm. And he doesn't understand that the theology is the same, even if the politics are different. And I think the theology is the problem. The theology is what allows people to support Donald Trump in some ways. So the future of evangelicalism, I think, is going to continue to exist with power because I think we have a 
a Trump or a Trump-like person coming in 2024 that will re-energize that same political base. But evangelical is not a religious word anymore. It is a political word. And so anybody who truly wants to, I'll say it this way, and I want to rant on this, but I won't. Uh, Feel free. Feel free. Whatever you want to do, man. I'm, I'm here for it. The history of evangelicalism, it was founded late 1800s, early 1900s to be a moderate middle way between liberalism and fundamentalism. The early evangelicals, um, they believed in justice in the world. They were committed to social justice. The early evangelicals were actually pro-abortion. Look at Christianity Today in 1970. I think their cover article is about why they are pro-life. They were socially open and progressive. They were moderate theologically, and they embraced science and reason while holding on to orthodoxy. It was this beautiful, moderate path. And the one thing our society is missing politically and religiously is a moderate path. And yet, while the loudest voices are these far left, far right voices, if you talk to most people, and I know this, I live three blocks from the White House. I have friends all the time working in government who, when you get them over a beer, say, I'm a part of the Republican establishment. I'm a part of the Democratic establishment. And it's all too much. I actually just want somebody who's a little bit more reasonable, a little bit more moderate. That's politically and religiously. And I think somebody needs to do the work of saying evangelicalism is dead because it's been hijacked. Yep. Let's create another space for all the rest of us that are not sold out to Republican politics, but we're not ready to go with Bishop John Shelby Spong and say, (laughs) Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Like, right. There needs to be a middle way. And for the sake of our country, for the sake of Christianity, for the sake of the world, I hope that we can all in the future figure out how to get out of these polarized boxes and be reasonable about our faith, be reasonable about our politics, hold space for other views. And I think you're doing that, like the ability to demonstrate what you're doing here. I just think you need to drop the word evangelical. But (laughs) I mean, to be fair, I I would be lying if I said I haven't thought about it. But but to your point, I actually have on my desk right here, Discovering Evangelical Heritage by Donald Dayton. And, you know, that was the book. It's so easy, such an easy read. I'm reading, I'm like, where are these evangelicals, abolitionists, egalitarians, you know? Um, I mean, you know, people who are building the Underground Railroad, very, you know, committed to piety. I'm like, you know, like, that's, those are my people, right? So, I, you know, and maybe, maybe I am in that starry-eyed, you know, moment where it's like, I'm keeping the name, but I'm convinced more and more that I, I don't think that we can reform the current institutional structures that make up what I what I call the American evangelical church. I mean, when you have yeah. Mark Driscoll still being platformed today by large other megachurch pastors with no accountability, but every pastor knows about critical race theory, I'm like, people, if you don't see how ass-backwards this is, like, it's so backwards. And, of course, the Trump stuff, and that's when I— I, I can rant about that for a long time, which we're not going to. I have my own platform yeah. for that. But, you know, my, my, my point is just to say that, like, I'm hoping to be that moderate way in some way, shape, or form. The problem, though, is that once you start talking about critical race theory or social justice or inclusion, people are so far right. They think that you're, that you're like a radical left Marxist who wants to, you know, who, who like wants to destroy America. It's like, guys, this is not that radical to say queer people are made in God's image. They should be included or we should learn from them. You know, that's not a radical yeah. thing to say. It's not radical. 
But that's what orthodoxy does. That's what the final point I'll make here. Is that's exactly it. There's a yeah. left-wing orthodoxy and a right-wing orthodoxy. And it mm. says, if you violate any of these, you're not part of us, which is not true. That's not mm. how the world works. That's not how Christianity worked up until orthodoxy was formed. Yeah. It's not how the Democrat or the Republican Party should work. It's not how evangelicalism could work. Because when we go into our orthodoxies, we destroy things. We destroy people. And mm. That doesn't, that's not a way to lead towards flourishing. It's not a way to accomplish what Jesus set out to accomplish. Man, I got to say, Brandon, this has given me a lot of things to think about and to chew on because still kind of coming out of like the evangelical heritage, still working through orthodoxy or affirming creeds. But like you just said, if they're killing people, if it's not leading to human flourishing, are they serving the purpose? Like if they're just drawing more boundaries around who's in and who's out, like is that the point, right? And I think about even like in like the biblical narrative, there's a, a thread of God's blessing going out. You know, first the Jews into the like it's it's expanding. And how do we how do we pick up on that spirit, right? And keep expanding things outwards instead of think, making things tighter. So that will that will be something that I have to just work through with how I see that in my head and like what I, how, what I do with all this stuff, but very thought provoking. There's no doubt about it. I mean, where yeah. can people find you? Do you have books out? Like, I mean, you, where are you on this stuff? I have a book coming out on Monday called filled to be emptied oh, the path shoot. of liberation for privileged people. It's my uh, using the kenosis hymn from Philippians chapter two to talk about privilege and help Christians think about what it means to be privileged. Ooh. So people should look for that. Uh, but really brandonrobertson.com, my website has everything, social media, books, all of that fun stuff. But yeah, I'm really grateful for your willingness to have these kind of conversations. Well, but you know what it is, honestly, like every day I'm just reminded at like how big the world is and just how many beautiful people are in it that did that don't have my perspective and how much more I have to learn. Right. Because like the reality is if we're trying to put language onto the divine and, you know, Shelby talks about this a little bit, like, you know, we're, we're still finite and even how we describe this infinite being. Right. And that kind of stuck with me. So it's like we need each other to kind of help put some some kind of mental imagery of like, what are we actually talking about? What are we what are we trying to touch? And also, how does it impact our world, especially if we're trying to be. Yeah, again, if 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 we have some form of a Christian thought or even a religious thought that we're if we're reflecting the image of God to the world and you know co-ruling with God and like what does that mean? Like, there's just so much more responsibility there, right? And so you need other people who have these different cultural and just like um, just perspectives and also knowledge to help fill out like how big this topic is. I mean, it's just so freaking massive. You need those yeah. voices because. I don't know. I feel like every day I'm just challenged with, with like new ways to think about being a Christian or being human even. And it's just, yeah. it's, it's beautiful, but my gosh, it is like, it, it can be dis disorienting at times, you know? Yeah. That's the ancient <laughs> tradition of our faith. I'll close with St. Augustine quote that I quote all the time. He says, we're talking about God. What wonder is it that you do not understand? Mm -hmm. For if you understood, we would no longer be talking about God. The very idea that all of our words fall short of the divine reality that we're speaking of. Yeah. And so we should have that humility when we're talking about God, because everything we say is ultimately going to be wrong because everything is finite compared to an infinite thing. We're talking about finite words cannot describe the infinite beauty that we're trying to get out when we're talking about God. So be humble, be curious and keep talking, keep listening to other people. Uh, Rollins has his great book, how not to speak of God. Yes. That hits yes. right on this. So anyways, yeah. 
Brandon, it was great having you. Let's let's keep in touch for sure. We're, we're yeah. always better together. Um, I, you know, I'm actually in New Jersey. I'm not too far from you in Washington. So maybe one day we can grab a beer or something like that and catch up. It, it'd be yeah. great. I would love to. And I may well be moving to New Jersey in six months. So What? Which, what? Like uh, North, South, Central? What, what area? So one of my PhD programs, I'm waiting to hear next week, I'll know if I got accepted, uh, is Drew University. And so... Uh, Drew is in Madison, New Jersey. It's about it's forty five minutes from New York. Yeah. So yeah. Well, that's luckily New Jersey's so small. That's still only about an hour and ten minutes away from me. So it's still a short drive. Cool. All right. Well, keep in touch then. Let's definitely keep in touch because <laughs> if that happens, we definitely need to connect. So um, for sure, Brandon. Thanks for making time. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk again. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye.